parables in the New Testament. Um, and Matthew records some, um, some individual ones. In fact, the one that we're going to read this morning is only recorded in the book of Matthew. Um, but it is one of, I think, one of the most telling um, parables and ask one, answer one of the most pressing questions that many of us have when we look at God. And here's the thing that we've talked about every week. When Jesus spoke, when he talked in parables... Essentially what he was doing was he was bringing either new information or misaligned information or misunderstood information about God to a pretty religiously informed audience. In other words, as Jesus spoke and Jesus taught, he would speak in parables and he would say the kingdom of heaven is like, in other words, God is like, the way that God moves is like, the way that God interacts is like, God's redemptive plan is like, God's forgiveness is like, God's judgment is like, God's, God's salvation is like. And he would talk about something about God and relate it to something that was common to people um, in their specific day that we kind of have to parse out a little bit. But as he did, the understanding was, or the implication of when he taught, was that to a religiously informed audience... I've seen you pray, I've seen you worship, I've seen you interact with each other, I've seen you interact with God, and there are some misunderstandings about how you or what you think about when you think about God. And honestly, that's potentially offensive because the implication or the parallel for us is similar. That many of us can grow up in an incredibly religious background or a very religiously influenced background. Some of us were raised in backgrounds that didn't have as much religious influence, maybe not as much Christian influence. And so we have some preconceived ideas about God. Whether you were raised in the church or out of the church, we have some thoughts about God. We have some questions about God. We have some assumptions about God that honestly many of us assume, but none of us even realize that we assume. And so as Jesus talked... He would talk in parables and say, I've seen you interact and I've seen an assumption that you have about God, but let me bring that assumption into alignment with who God really is. Now, this morning, I don't care who you are, where you are, where you're from, what your religious background is, this is a question that we have all wrestled with to some degree. And the question essentially is about the justice of God. It is to say... If God is a just God, why would X happen? If God is a just God, why would Y happen? In fact, if God is a just God, why would he allow X to happen to Y person and Z to happen to A person? I just made those letters up, and that was confusing for anybody that's not a math type person in here. But the question is essentially, why would God allow this to happen? And it's funny because if, if, if we're being honest with ourselves, um, there's some things about God that we really don't get. There's some priorities about God that truthfully are a little bit off. If we were to be God, and we talked about all this last week, if we were to be God, we would project ourselves in a certain way and in a certain light. And if we were God, we perhaps wouldn't deal with things the same way that God does. For instance, when we pray, for many of us, it seems like God's prioritization and answering prayers is a little bit weird and wacky. You ever notice that? That One group will pray for this incredibly life-threatening, huge ordeal. You know, someone has cancer. Someone is in a hospital. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you get the whole church community together. You get the whole, you know, small group community together. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. And And it seems like nothing happens. And the person has succumbed to whatever sickness or illness or injury. And then you got someone that prays for a parking spot. And they get it. And it's like, all right, well, God, I'm not saying, you know, I'm smarter than you because you're God and that feels heretical. But if I was God, 
I would probably direct it, you know, I pray and I was running late for work and I really wanted to be on time because my boss told me they needed to be on time. And man, I just prayed and I hit every single traffic light green. You know, God is real. Meanwhile, the person's in the hospital saying, where is God when this is going on? And it's a little bit difficult to figure out. It's a little bit difficult to understand because when we look at God in terms of justice and justness, there are some things in our world that we have a difficult bringing into alignment. How could a just God allow this to happen? How could a just God bless these people and not bless these people? Sometimes we look at the question through the lens of how does bad things happen to, why does bad things happen to good people? Sometimes we need to look at the question through why do good things happen to bad people? It seems like you're doing everything that you can to honor God. You're doing everything that you can to glorify God. But the deepest and most heartfelt and sincere things that you ask for and you wish for and you pray for don't happen. You're trying to glorify God with your life and you're praying that you get into this major. You're you're, you're, you're trying to glorify God with your entire life and you're praying that he provides you with a job. You're praying that God heals the person that's sick in your family. You're praying for your children, that they would grow up a certain way and learn a certain way and believe in Jesus. You're praying and you're doing everything you can to glorify God in your life. And then you see somebody and you're not trying to be judgmental. I mean, it's just kind of honest observation. You see somebody who doesn't do any of that and it seems like they get all of that. Maybe behind the scenes, there's resentment that's built up. There's frustration that's built up towards God. Because if we're all being honest, we don't really understand how God and why God works the way that He works. And somebody who's incredibly spiritual will come along and say, Well, you know, none of us deserve any of this. You know, it's by grace, it's by grace that I don't, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it. And we're sitting there thinking inside, well, I know I don't deserve it, but I know they definitely don't deserve it. And so why in the world would a loving God, why in the world would a loving God do some of the things, act some of the ways, allow some of the things to happen that he lets happen? And I know there's grace, and I know that grace plays a part into it, but come on, come on, let's just be honest. Again, I know my life and you know your life and you know some of the people around you who don't even, not, not just don't even like believe God, like don't even fear God, like don't have a care, don't have any respect for the rules and it just seems like everything they do touches and turns into gold. And you sit there and you say, why? Well, in the story we're going to read today, Jesus begins to address some of this. Now, let me just kind of give you a little you know, asterisk in the whole sermon. At the end of it, it's not an extraordinarily emotionally satisfying answer. It's not, we're, we're not going to walk away saying, like, oh, my gosh, I just feel so good about myself. But in answering the question, I think Jesus opens up in this parable in Matthew chapter 20 an answer to us that makes it reasonable for us to trust God in light of the fact that we don't understand the justice of God. Now, to get there, we're going to do a little bit more. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. Let me give you some context to, to what's happening because this parable and the other parables, he's just like rattling off parables. Let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you. This parable specifically comes on the heels of an event that just happened. The event that just happened um, is Jesus is talking 
And he has this guy who would be later kind of known through the Bible lens as the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes up to him and says, Jesus, basically, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know, here's all the rules. And he says, you know, I've followed him since I was young. And Jesus says, you're right. You've done a good job so far. Um, But here's the one thing that you lack. I want you to take everything that you have. I want you to sell it and give it to the poor. And I want you to come and follow me. And then you will have eternal life. And so the guy basically says, I can't do it. Says he went away sad because he had much, much wealth or tons and tons of possessions, depending on which account that you read. And so on the heels of this, he talks to his disciples. And he says, it is incredibly difficult. It is extraordinarily difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through an eye of a needle. And there's all kinds of debate about what that means. Was it the particular gate that the, you know, the, the camel had to get down on his knees and strip everything off? And the same way we submit to God, take everything off and come to him? Maybe. Or is it like there's like an eye of a needle and the camel's trying to get through? Either way, it's really stinking difficult for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, however you unpack that particular part. And Jesus' point was, hey, this is difficult. And so his disciples respond, how many of us would respond to, well, Jesus, that doesn't sound difficult. That sounds impossible. Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. And Peter, on the tail end of that question, or the tail end of that whole response has an incredible question that begins to help us to understand what Jesus is talking about this morning. And this is what he says in chapter 19, um, verse 27. He says this, um, on the, again, on the tail end of this, Matthew 19, 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. We left everything. We left our fathers. We left our mothers. We left you know, our occupations. We left all the stuff that we did. We left all the stuff that we have to follow you. So surely, because he couldn't leave anything to follow you, we've left everything to come follow you. What do we get out of it? In other words, I know how this world works. When you do well, you get well. When you do much, you get much. When I work hard, I am rewarded. When I you know, have for my job or for my class and I do an incredible job on my project, whether it's you know, in a sales meeting or I do an incredible job for my project at you know, whatever it is that you're you know, going to school for, and, and I did a great job, I get a good grade. So basically says, so Jesus, so what happens to us because we have done far more? I mean, come on. You know how this justice system works. Great obedience, great reward. So Jesus answers in verse 28. He said, Truly I say to you that in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. To that, to that, many of us thinking, what in the heck does that mean? It just kind of means like in the other world, there's going to be an incredible reward. And everyone who has left his children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then he launches into this, this parable. Now he kind of goes on and says, okay, the, the very last sentence in that, the first will be last and last will be first. Words, but there's something that you need to take into account. There's something that you perhaps haven't considered. And so let me tell you a story to give you some understanding and some wisdom and some insight into how this works. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a Daenerys, a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, of of relative uh, importance, a Daenerys was essentially what most people would get paid for a day's work. So he said, okay, so you're going to work a day, I'm going to pay you for a day. You're going to work a day, I'm going to pay you for a day. Pretty straightforward. Verse 3. 
And going out, about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Now, there's about 12 hours in this whole workday. So three hours, and he sees other people standing around. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. In other words, I'm not going to tell you exactly what I'm going to give you, but I'm going to give you what is right. I'm going to give you what you feel is right, what you think is right, what you think is just, what we all think is just. So they went, going out. Again, about the sixth hour, this is about noon. In the ninth hour, which is about three, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, the obvious reason, because no one has hired us. In other words, we're not just standing around to stand around. We're standing around because we haven't had anybody who came and hired us all day. And this is about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, about an hour, and then a 12-hour workday. This is about an hour before you, you, know, you, you put the hay in the barn and, and head to the house in a Cottondale expression. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, So you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, again, you probably already connected this dot. But essentially, the guys who got hired an hour before working, an hour before work ended, got paid what the original people agreed to. And what the original people, the 5 a.m.ers, the 6 a.m.ers thought, which is what all of us would probably inevitably think in that situation, is if they got that much, how much am I about to get? Because I've been working all day. I work through the heat of the day. I work through breakfast. I work through lunch. I mean, I have massive, massive amounts of productivity to show what I have done today. And I have done so much more work. And what everybody knows and what's intuitive is the more that you do, the more that you get. The more that you do, the more that you get. The more that you do, the more that you get. And I did so much more than them. And it stands to reason that I should get so much more than them. Now, when those hired first, verse 10, came, they thought they would receive more. They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a Daenerys. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. In other words, so they came to him and they said, you know, master, this doesn't make sense. You gave them that and they only did an hour's of the work. We, I mean, we were here. We were here when the day was hot. We were here when there was no cloud coverage. We were sitting on the visitor side of the student section and we were grilling in the sun the entire time where everybody else was sitting in the club seats eating and drinking. And you're going to give us the same thing for that. That just doesn't make sense. And it's, it's, it's interesting because we always look at this through a Bible perspective. We kind of know how the, how the story ends. But as we're looking at this, I mean, come on, what would you think? What would you think? If you got hired and you worked all day long and somebody who just came in for the last 45 minutes got paid the exact same thing you paid or you got paid, there's a chance you would feel cheated. And in this is the essence of our thought process, which is that if I am obedient to God, 
I should get more. If I am obedient to God, I should get better than someone else does. Because 99% of our world works that way. You are rewarded for what you have done. And so they have this question. That's the question that we've all asked, just in different circumstances. It seems like I try to glorify God with my wife, my life, and my wife. It seems like I try to glorify God with my wife. Come on, let's take that example. I try to glorify God with my life. And I pray and I pray and I pray that God will send someone into my life. But it seems like the more I pray and the more I pray and the more I pray, the less God provides a spouse for me. And then I see this other person who, who's been a Christian for like 10 minutes. Not even sure how to pray. And all of a sudden, God provides this man or this woman for this person. And it just doesn't make sense. You try to not let it affect you. You try to not let, it, let resentment build around it. Let's be honest. Some of you have led lives that were incredibly glorifying to God. I mean, comparatively to everyone else, you have led some lives that, I mean, they're inspiring to us. But you have been through some of the worst experiences and circumstances and situations in light of that. And the truth is, it's hard not to have some type of an attitude that these workers had that looks at God and says, What? Why? Why? That just doesn't even make sense. And I know that you're a just God. I know that you're a loving God. But come on, God. That doesn't even make sense. And he responds to his workers. He says this. Friend. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? In other words, let's just, let's just pause here and take a look at the situation. Number one, I have not mistreated you. I have not mistreated you. I have not looked at you and done something extraordinarily contradictory to what you have earned and deserved. Now, this is an emotionally unsatisfying beginning to a response. Because essentially what he's starting to say is, hey, everyone else aside, let's talk about me and you for a second. Everyone else for a, or, or aside, let's talk about me and you for a second. Let's look at God, I mean, just kind of forgetting this story. Let's look at the promises that God has given us. Yes, he promised us peace. Yes, he promised us all kinds of things where he would say in his word, that I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That you will have purpose in your life. But God also promised us that anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution of many kinds. In fact, here's the, here's the interesting thing about the Bible. Especially the New Testament. You find one person who lived a glorifying life for God and wasn't killed for it. And the reality is, as we look at this, as we look at 
how God deals and how God works is, yes, that I am going to give you what I promised. I am going to give you salvation in the middle of sometimes hell on earth. I am going to, as in Philippians 4 talks about, I am going to give you the peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard your hearts and mind, that you might be going through some incredible things, but I will preserve your heart and I will preserve your mind as I give you peace to know that I am control, that we are able to sing it is well with my soul regardless of what's going on. But when you compare that to other people, you bring in a variable that you ought not bring into because this is between me and you, not you and them. You see, here's here's something that I had to realize, that we all have to realize. Especially, you know, when, when it comes to to really any issue, but you, you bring up in family. Let's say my dad, kind of our family dynamics, we've got my dad and we've got my sister and my mom passed away a few years back. Well, let's say my dad and my sister and I, if my dad decides to do something for my sister, it doesn't mean my dad owes me anything. He doesn't owe me anything. <laughs> in fact, what I'm learning as a parent is my dad has already done so much for me. But there's a part of me, and there's a part of all of us, that can see how someone else is treated and feel entitled to the same treatment. And it's this sense of entitlement mentality that we feel like because they have than we deserve. Where we sometimes have to look at our Heavenly Father and say, you know what? The reality is, is if I got what I deserved, I would receive eternal punishment and eternal separation from God. But I have the grace of God in my life. And if God has done nothing else for me, God has sent His Son to die for me. To give me a new hope. To give me forgiveness. To give me salvation. And I can't look at God outside of the promises of God. And expect for God to do more for me than he has for other people because he never promised that. But sometimes, as frankly is the problem with many of us in our generation, we feel a sense of entitlement that we should get it because we're us and I'm me. And someone else was treated that way. So he stops us. Let's have a little conversation. I didn't treat you unfairly. In fact, to take it a step further, he says, Take what belongs to you and go. Because I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And by the way, verse 15, am I not allowed? To do what I choose with what belongs to me? In other words, you're not entitled to it. I gave you exactly what I told you that I was going to give you. And if I decide to give someone else more, that's not unfair because it's mine and I can do what darn well pleases me. Now, if I've treated you unfairly, 
If I have not held up my end of the bargain, if I decided that I was going to give them all of this and you only this because of the fact that I told you I was going to give you this, but I'm cheating you. Whole different conversation, whole different situation. We're not talking about mismanagement and mistreatment. We're talking about an entitlement mentality that says because they receive, I should receive. Because they were treated, I should be treated. And God says, look, I can do. This is all of mine. I don't owe you anything. My justice doesn't work the way that you think justice perhaps works. I'm going to give you exactly what I told you I was going to give you, which, by the way, is more than you deserve. But in light of that, I'm going to give you. And I might give to someone else more. But I'm never going to cheat you. I'm never going to use you. And I'm never going to mistreat you. But I might give to someone else more. Because if we're being honest, there's some of us in here that are on both sides. For some of us, God has been so extraordinarily generous to you. And God has given to you. And you should praise God for that. And for some of us, He has given to us. And He has been generous with us when He gave us His Son. But there's been some heartaches in between. And at the end of the day, the reality is how he ends this story. As he says, am I not allowed to do what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Or are you jealous of the fact that I'm generous? And then he ends it. And, I, and I, this is why I love Jesus. Because this is, this is something, this last statement is something that we know intuitively. This is something that we've read over and over and over and over and over in our Bible. This is something that, if I were to say, is at the heart, is at the core of the heart of God. This is the thing that defines Christianity. That when we as Christians, now again, if you're not a Christian, then, then this part isn't as maybe intuitive for you. But if you are a Christian, this is why, this is why, this whole sense of justice makes sense because at the heart of God is a selfless heart not a selfish heart at the heart of God is for us to be a group of people who go and love and serve at the heart of God is what we often talk about in Philippians 2 that we should consider everyone better than ourselves that I should look not only to my own interest but also to the interest of others that as Philippians 2 3 says do nothing out of selfish ambition nothing out of vain conceit but in humility consider others better than yourself when he says this so the last will be first and the first last in other words, when you feel that push of justice, when you feel that push of I ought to and I deserve, let me tell you what you're doing. You are putting yourself first, not last. You are putting yourself primary, not secondary. In the heart of God is a heart of people that see themselves not as first but would gladly serve would gladly love would gladly put others first the heart is that we would look at everyone else and say god thank you so much that you have blessed them that i will gladly take all of this crap if it helps everybody else let me tell you that 
is a Christian. That is different. Oftentimes people talk about what's the difference between Christians and everybody else. It all seems like good people. Let me tell you, that is radically different. If we can get to the point where I say, you know what? There are some difficult things in life, and I will gladly go through them so you don't have to. That's what it means to put others above yourself. That's what it means to look not only after your own interests, but also to the interest of others. That's what it means, by the way, to live like Jesus. Who Paul would continue on in Philippians 2 and said, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't pull the God card, but he humbled himself, taking the very form of a servant, made himself nothing, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, he didn't say, this is what I deserve because I am God and I deserve everything. He said, even though I am God, I am not going to pull the God card. I am not going to play the God card. I am going to come down and I am going to serve and I am going to take the punishment that you should have and ought to have taken. Now, how different would that be? How different would that be if at the heart of every Christian was an understanding the first will be last, and the last will be first. And I will champion, I will applaud, and I will cheer when good things happen for you. And I will cheer on the outside and feel resentment build up on the inside. There will be a genuine sense of happiness and gladness because I'm putting you first. Because I care about you. Because I love you. And not just because I ought to, but because I realize that's what my heavenly Father did for me. That when he sent Jesus, when he sent Jesus, he sent the preeminent being of the universe to take the form of a human to serve the marginalized and to be murdered on a cross to serve the unjust people. And as a reflection for you and I, the call is to do the same. Now, I know depending on where you are in life, that might not be the most emotionally uplifting thing, you might still be going through it. But let me just tell you, we do serve a God that will give you peace. We do serve a God that will give you patience. We do serve a God that did promise he will not give you more than you can handle and you can sustain. Because he will be with you as you go through it. But we also serve a God who does not owe us anything. And in the realization of that, asks us, compels us, commands us to put other people first. This is why, by the way, when Jesus prayed right before he died in the garden, he sat down and said, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, please let it be another way. 
If there's any other way for the sins of the world, if there's any other way for the wrath of God to be, to be satisfied, then let that be. But your will be done, which you desire over what I desire, your heart over what I wish wouldn't happen. In other words, God, you first, and put other people first. And whatever that means for me, I trust you. So again, I don't know who you are, don't know where you are, but here's what I know. You have a God that so loves you that he gave his one and only son to die for you. And if God would not withhold that, He will not withhold the power, the ability, the peace, the patience, the understanding, and the wisdom to make it through whatever it is that he has given you. And in fact, he will put a heart inside of you that has a heart for other people that says, God, I will gladly take this so that other people don't have to. And as crazy as that may sound, how different of a world would we live in if that described Christians? How differently would people think about God? How differently would people think about Jesus if to the core that deep down we put other people first? There's a good chance, especially if you're in here, you're investigating Christianity. You would think a lot different about God. You would think a lot different about the church. You would think a lot different about Jesus. And perhaps you would give God a chance where you've been holding back because you would see something so inexplicably different and selfless. It would just be mesmerized. So I'm praying that God turns us and compels us to be that type of a church. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for anyone, first and foremost, going through a situation like this where they just feel incredibly unequally treated. God, we know that as you gave this parable, there was, there was, there was salvific implications to it. There was implications of, of, of people coming to know you at any point. There was implications of Gentiles coming to know you later. God, but we also understand the principle that you have called us to love. You have called us to be selfless. You have called us into your heart. And so God, would you please transform us into a group of people who don't feel entitled who understand you have already given us more than we could ever deserve when you gave us your one and only son, when you, God of the universe, the preeminent being of the universe, saw sinful, rebellious us and decided that you were going to send your one and only son to be sacrificed, to take the wrath, to take the punishment, to take the pain that we should have gotten and in turn provide ultimate grace, ultimate love, ultimate acceptance, and ultimate forgiveness. And God, would you please put that heart inside of us that when we go through difficult things, we would have the mentality God, the first will be last and the last will be first. That I will gladly take this because I am not being mistreated, but I will gladly take this in sacrifice, in service, in love to the people around me. And God, I pray and I ask that you would transform our congregation, transform each one of us individually into a group of people who are so close to you understand your love and your grace so deeply that we would not be entitled, but we would serve, knowing you have already given us way more than we ever deserve. And for those of us who have gotten just generously, 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 you would help us to have a heart of just inexplicable thankfulness. 
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.